On Wednesday nights, we have a really great group that has been coming together um, to meet and to walk through a course called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. We've talked about some of that stuff around here. We've um, encouraged you to be a part of it. Uh, We've talked about it through our uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality uh, initiative that we did, what, a year and a half ago or something like that. Um, But a really great group that has been there and been a part of that. And I want to encourage you, if you've thought about doing it or wondered about doing it, um, we will likely offer this again in the future. And I want to encourage you, if you can do it, be a part of it. Uh, there is some great work. There are some great practices that are happening in it. There are some great skills that are being practiced. Uh, it's been really good for us. Um, this week as we were together, we were encouraged um, to ask a question, to wrestle with a question. The, this was it. It says, what was considered success in your family growing up? How did that impact you? What do you think of when you think of success, of something that is successful? What does a successful business look like? What does a successful church look like? What does a successful family look like? What does it it look like to be successful as a parent or even as a child? What about this one? What does it look like to have success as a messiah? That was really the heart of the issue that was taking place in this conversation between Jesus and Peter. They were struggling with the idea of of, of what it meant to be successful. They did not have the same understanding. Peter and the disciples had this kind of basic, very understandable, expected definition of part of that. And it was this. It was that messiahs don't get killed by the ruling authorities. Like that was just kind of this basic expectation. Messiahs don't get killed. Messiahs are supposed to come and bring salvation from those authorities. Messiahs are supposed to come and overthrow those authorities. Messiahs who get killed by the authorities will eventually be shown as false messiahs. That was just basic understanding because lots of messiahs came and went. And none of those messiahs did anything impressive because all of them eventually were gone. And yet Jesus, who they come to believe was the Messiah, was standing in front of them and telling them that this is exactly the path that he was on. This is exactly what was going to happen to him. He was going to be punished and suffer and die. Now, they just had an interesting conversation. They just had a conversation where Peter and the disciples had finally come to the place of of declaring, of proclaiming. They believed the things that Jesus had told them. We didn't read that story, but that story you know because many of you have heard verse 29 of chapter 8 in which Jesus says, then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. You're the one who came to save us. You are who you've told us you are. You are the Messiah. And there's this really odd ending to that story that we didn't read. The one that transitions into the one that we read today. There's this really odd ending and this this strange word that Mark uses to tell us what Jesus' response was to Peter finally getting that Jesus was the Messiah. 
Seemingly, translators really struggle with the use of this word because this word appears in the Greek three times over these two conversations. Three different times it shows up, and every time it's translated slightly different. For some reason, the translators seemingly have a struggle with getting it in the same way that Mark got it or believing that it needs to be said the same time, the same way over and over again. Instead, they choose to vary it. The Greek word that was used is the word rebuke. Three times. I might. There's green again. It was kind of orangish. Does that mean I need a battery? Let's just go ahead and bring some just so I don't die throughout the whole thing. Um, The word rebuke is the word that Mark used three times that the translators usually vary. But we find it in, in Mark 830. So immediately responding, Jesus says, you are the Messiah. And the passage, Mark tells us, Jesus rebuked Peter for calling him the Christ, for calling him Messiah. Then Peter rebuked Jesus. He pulls him aside when he's having this this little conversation about what's going to happen to him. He pulls him aside and he says, Jesus, stop saying that. It says that Peter rebuked Jesus for these claims that he was going to die. Oh, I don't want to switch. That gets way too complicated on me. This is easy. Okay, thank you. I like this mic. It stays on my ear. That one will fall all over the place. (laughs) Um, And then the last time, Peter, sorry, Jesus, okay. Is everybody with me? Because I'm losing track of where I'm at. Three times. No, no, no. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. I want a battery that works so that we can stay on course. Three times rebuke. Jesus rebukes Peter for calling him the Messiah. Time number one. Time number two. Peter rebukes rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to die. Time number three. Jesus rebukes Peter for rebuking Jesus. That one gets a little confusing, I know. He rebukes him and says that Peter has taken the side of Satan. This powerful word intentionally used over and over again, three times by Mark, because we need to understand how important it was that Peter and Jesus, the disciples and Jesus, didn't agree on what was taking place here. This disagreement was significant. Their understanding of what it meant to be the Messiah stood in stark contrast. They understood success very differently. The reality is that the future proclamation of the gospel was absolutely dependent on the disciples coming to understand the same thing about the Messiah that Jesus was trying to tell them. So the initial rebuke of Peter, the initial rebuke of him calling Jesus the Messiah was Jesus showing his understanding. They didn't get it yet. They knew the words. They knew the title. They knew what they were saying because they'd heard it over and over again, but they didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. So he had to stop them from spreading untrue claims about what it meant to be the Messiah. And apparently this was a brand new teaching for them. 
because it rattled them a bit. It didn't fall in line with everything that they believed was true, with everything that they understood to be the case. In fact, this is the first time that Jesus has talked to them about the death that was coming his way. Now, you have to get the magnitude of what this means. This, these men have left everything behind. These people, because there were probably a few women that were along the, the journey also, have left everything behind to follow this man who they believe is the one true Messiah. The one they've waited for. The one that others have claimed to be. But this guy, they're in for. So they've left their jobs. They've left their lives. They've left their homes. They've left everything to follow this guy. And they finally caught on and proclaimed, yes, this is him. And now Jesus, the Messiah, is willingly walking towards loss, sacrifice, a torturous death on the cross. Now again, basic understanding that you have of a Messiah when you believe that someone's a Messiah, when you want to follow after them. Peter, the disciples, they're there. Messiahs are supposed to defeat the enemy, not get killed by them. Winning required at least that victory. Don't be killed by the enemy. At the very least, that peace had to happen. And yet David Garland, a professor at the school that Jeff and I went to, a commentator, says this, says Peter's concept of the Christ... Is too narrow, too laden with selfish human fantasies. And William Willimon, a a well respected pastor and professor, says this Peter's exalted view of Jesus' identity is nothing less than satanic. This passage has been difficult for me this week. It has been difficult because it has forced me to come to the place of asking the question of how often I think too much like Peter. How often I, whether knowingly or unknowingly, have chosen to take the side of Satan rather than the side of Jesus. Demanding that Jesus fulfill my expectations. It's made me question, it's made me wonder how many times I have rebuked Jesus for looking less like the Messiah than I think he's supposed to. It's made me wonder how many times I've criticized the movements of God because they don't seem successful in my eyes. Willimon goes on to say, there's a great gap between who we think Jesus ought to be and who Jesus is. Our greatest problem with the gospel is a problem of our idolatry. As disciples, not the disciples in the New Testament, not the twelve who we like to pick on once in a while because they struggled figuring out. As disciples today, as men and women who have said we want to follow after Jesus, we must stop and ask the question. The questions that I've wrestled with, that we have to wrestle with, but ultimately we have to decide if our preconceived notions of success 
dictate the behaviors that we think Jesus ought to have more so than his own testimony, more so than the scriptures tell us. The reality is we usually see exactly what we want to see when we go looking for it. So often as we read the Gospels, we find exactly what we're looking for, exactly what we expect. We expect Jesus is going to bless the faithful. He's going to bless those that follow after him. As we read the Scriptures, we read it with the expectation of what it is. The idea that the primary purpose of the Scriptures is to teach men and women of God primarily how to be nicer to each other. That it's to teach us a few good behaviors so that we behave better, so that we act better, so that we're nicer to one another, so that we get along better. And this distorted view of Jesus, this distorted view of the gospel brings us to a place that far too often we preach, we teach, we pass on a good news that is safe, that's sanitized, that's convenient, that's maybe even desirable. And yet on this day, in this conversation, we watch as Jesus keeps talking about something that is anything but desirable. If we try and bring Peter's words into modern day, here's my translation of what I feel like Peter is saying. I feel like Peter looks at Jesus and says, dude, you're killing our sales pitch. How do you expect to get any followers When you tell them that you're about to suffer and die, messiahs don't die. How do you expect to get any followers? Well, then the next step you take is that you turn around and you look at them and say, and then they're supposed to walk the exact same path that you have walked. Jesus, we believe you are the Christ and we can sell this thing you're doing, but you have to calm down with the cross talk. You're really making things difficult for us. You have to stop talking about crosses and deaths. And Jesus' response is immediate. Jesus' rebuke is immediate. In verse 33, he says, get away from me, Satan. I want to point fingers at Peter so bad. And then I'm afraid Peter looks way too much like me. And I'm like, oh, stop. Quit it. Thankfully, we stand in a little bit different place than Peter and the disciples stood, don't we? Because now we're on the other side of Jesus' crucifixion. We have a bit more understanding of the value of the cross, of of what had to happen. The church, in fact, we're really proud of the cross. Look, there's one right there. We love the cross because we have this theological understanding that they didn't have of how necessary the cross is for our salvation. We have this understanding that the cross was demanded if you and I were ever actually going to be saved. And yes, there are some of us that have questions. We struggle with it. There's all kinds of theories of what does it mean and where does it go and what do we do with it? And guess what? We're not actually going down that path today. I want to go down a different path because I think even though as the church we really like this part of talking about the cross, we really like it until we get to verse 34. And then we're like, whoa, time out. I'm out now. No more of this stuff because Jesus on the cross, we understand, but Chad on the cross is too much to handle. You on the cross is farther than most of us want to go. And yet that is exactly the call of Christ, wasn't it? 
Mark 8, 34, it says this. It says, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must, this one says, give up your own way. There's several different translations there, but ultimately it says you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. These are the things that Jesus requests of those who want to be saved. These are the things that Jesus expects of those who want to journey with him. These are the demands that he places upon those who are the people that are about to be called the church that we see begin to flourish in in the book of Acts. This is the demand that he places upon them. This is the demand of those who want to become followers of the way. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Lent, 40 days leading up to Easter that we've talked about a bit. Is a small practice of self-denial. It's the practice of an individual giving up something that he or she loves so that they can pursue more faithfully something else that they want to love more deeply. So people give up chocolate or alcohol or coffee or food. And in doing so, they have created a space. A space to learn to love Jesus more fully. In the Lenten guide that we have been using, Ruth Haley Barton says, Whatever we choose, disciplines of fasting and other kinds of abstinence, clear the decks for spiritual action. As we clear out the clutter of compulsive behaviors and emerge from the fog of inner distractions, we become more finely attuned to the presence of God and all the ways in which that presence satisfies us utterly. And yet self-denial is greater than denying some one thing. It's greater than, than saying, okay, I'll just not do this. What Jesus is talking about when he calls us to self-denial is a, is a complete denial of ourself. Which is why one translation says our selfish ways, our own desires, our own wants. It means that we have to recognize when our own ambitions have taken the place of the ambitions or the desires or the longings of Christ. Self-denial means that we have to turn away from our idols and choose Jesus instead. Self-denial is different for each of us, but it is difficult for all of us. You see, for some, it means releasing the longing for safety. For others, it means releasing the longing for wealth. For others, it's releasing the longing for fame. For others, it's releasing the longing for power. For some of us, it's releasing the longing that we have for family. For some, it's releasing the longing that we have for food. For others, it's releasing this longing for a certain job or a certain promotion or a certain raise. For some, it's laying down the desire for vengeance. And for others of us, it's letting go of our hope that we could just do what is easy. Self-denial takes different forms for each of us, but it demands that we all reevaluate our understandings of success, of winning, of fairness, of justice. What does that mean? What does it look like? 
self-denial mandates that every Christ follower, that every church filter our ambitions, take every one of them and pour them into the filter of the ambitions of Christ and we let ours be held out and we only pursue the longings of Jesus. That's self-denial. <laughs> and if that wasn't hard enough, then Jesus turns a corner and he says, after this self-denial thing, I want you to take up your cross. And we have grossly sanitized this expectation of Jesus. We have grossly sanitized what he meant and what's going on. Sometimes we're arrogant enough to assume that the cross is, is simply him repeating the self-denial thing. The idea that, that, that all Jesus wants of us is a willingness to let go of something that we really want. That we satisfy the expectation of taking up our cross by having a little less money or foregoing some of the, the ways of the world by being criticized for being a person of faith. Sometimes we think taking up our cross is as simple as not being the majority population or not having the dominant voice at the table or not being the favored faith of some politician. And we call that our cross. Sometimes we try to say that taking up our cross is the gentle pushback that we get from time to time for those who don't understand. Or from those who actually have a different perspective on faith that we do. And this gentle pushback, that, that's our cross to bear. Sometimes even in the name of the cross, we have justified and mandated evil behaviors towards other people who look different from us. And called it taking up our cross. None of these is the cross that Jesus has called us to bear. None of these is the cross that Jesus has called us to walk with. The cross that Jesus was talking about, the cross that Jesus carried, was the cross of suffering, of torture, of pain, of ridicule, of abandonment, of defamation, of slander, of abuse, of oppression. This is the cross that Jesus says take on. And all of these things happened at the hands of those who stood adamantly opposed to everything that he believed and proclaimed to be true. That's what Jesus meant when he said, now you take up your cross and follow me. And my guess is very few of us have ever experienced such a thing. My guess is that most of us never will. My concern is that none of us are even willing. And yet this is the exact call that Christ has placed before us. The call that we deny ourselves, that we take up our own cross, our own suffering. Not gentle pushbacks, not disagreement, suffering, torture, oppression, abandonment. And that we follow Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, says following Jesus 
is more or less Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. And Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary life? How many of us believed that that was exactly what it meant to be a Christ follower? Just just a few minor adjustments. Just a couple tweaks here or there. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I've, I'm pretty nice to people. A couple tweaks and man, me and Jesus, we're good. The rebuke that, that Jesus brought back to Peter, the Peter's rebuke of Jesus has forced me to inspect my own life. To look for the places in which I too often have rebuked Jesus. It's made me wonder, am I willing to take such a great sacrifice? Will I follow when the cost is so great? Am I willing to truly follow after Jesus or to settle for a few minor adjustments to my life and call it good enough? Have I settled for some kind of sanitized religion and yet refused the way of Christ? (laughs) Uh, Have I taken the side of Satan? Rather than the side of Jesus, because Jesus doesn't look like I expect Jesus to look. There is nothing easy about following Christ. We've been asked to walk a new way. And that way includes the way of self-denial. Would you pray with me this morning? Um, And as we pray, I actually want to read a prayer to you. A prayer that's inside our Lenten guide. A prayer that's written uh, by Ruth Haley Barton. So would you pray with me? Oh God, I admit it. I know nothing about self-denial. I don't know what to give up. Or how or why. My whole life is about consuming and being consumed. And I am deeply cynical about anything that diminishes your desire for us to choose life. And yet, I know that simplifying actually clarifies Spring cleaning sweeps away the junk and garbage that weighs me down. Eliminating distraction puts me in touch with what I most deeply want, which is you and your life-changing wind blowing unencumbered through my life. Oh God, lead me in the letting go of anything that distracts, numbs, Keeps me jumbled on the inside. Guide me into uncluttered rooms and wide open spaces where I can meet you.
Amen.